and open your Bibles at Nehemiah chapter 5, in Church Bibles, page 488. Who's this? William Wilberforce, that's right. And he gave his life to free the slaves. Well, first of all, you can turn the lights back on again now, then you can see, well, I can see you and I can see my notes. Thank you. Can we have the lights back on, please? Thank you. First of all, he gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then as a servant of Jesus Christ, he felt he had to fight for the freedom of the slaves. It happened like this. At the age of 25, William Wilberforce was a member of parliament for Hull. He took his family to Switzerland, but he had to leave quickly to come back because um, William Pitt wanted him to vote in the House of Commons. And so traveling back with his uh, traveling companion, Isaac Milner, his old school teacher, they read together Philip Doddridge's fa famous book, The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul. And on that journey, William Wilberforce came to be intellectually convinced that God existed that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, that Jesus Christ was Lord. But it wasn't until the next year, when he traveled back to the south of France this time to collect his mother and sister, that on that journey, William Wilberforce put his trust in Jesus Christ as his own savior. There was a struggle in his soul. He was worried what would happen if he became one of these evangelicals. Uh, and um, there was this uh, terrific battle, and finally he surrendered to Jesus Christ. And he became the third evangelical in the uh, parliament. Within weeks of him uh, putting his trust in Jesus Christ, one of the other evangelicals sent a letter to William Wilberforce and asked him to do something to help the slaves. Well, after 21 years of struggle, Parliament finally abolished the slave trade. But it made no difference to the slaves at all. They were still brutally forced to work. And it took another 26 years and when William Wilberforce was 71 years old and on his deathbed, finally, the Emancipation Act finally freed the slaves. What we forget is that William Wilberforce didn't do this on his own. He had others in uh, Parliament supporting him, and then he had a, a close group of supporters known as the Clapham sect. And then he had tens of thousands of believers up and down the country supporting him. Living Christianity, gospel Christianity, has always preached salvation from sin through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And it has always practiced love for all people and help for the needy and downtrodden. Everywhere, everywhere the Christian church has spread, it has provided schools and hospitals everywhere. 
And then when Christianity has become healthy in the area, it has fought for the needs of those who are weak and vulnerable. And so in England, Lord Shaftesbury fought for the children working in the mines and factories. He fought for the blind and the aged. He fought for the poor and the destitute. And Bramwell Booth and the Salvation Army fought for the protection of young girls sold into prostitution, what was known as the white slave trade. And Dr. Bernardo fought for the uh, children and orphans. And Spurgeon and Muller and Fegan, they formed orphanages. And David Livingstone and Mary Slessor, they, they fought against cruelty in Africa. And on and on and on and on we could go. Because Christianity not only believes in a God who is all-powerful, who enables us to overcome sin and temptation and live righteous and holy lives. But we also believe in a God who is love, who pours out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit so that we do love one another. And we do love the needy and helpless. We even love our enemies. And we live to see the weak and the helpless protected and helped. Being godly means being holy because God is holy and it means being loving because God is love. Being godly means being like God, holy and loving. And this is why Nehemiah chapter 5 is the central chapter in the section chapters 3 to 7. We look at the brackets, chapter 3 and chapter 7 are about building the walls, making uh, uh, the people of God strong. Um, chapters 4 and 6 are about resisting opposition, making sure God's people are not compromised, they're uh, clean. But here in the middle, chapter 5, we see that we must show love, and compassion to the needy. And this is central. I mean, what's the point of building the church strong if it's not going to be loving and compassionate and share the heartbeat of God? On the 9th of May, 1912, William Booth, General of the Salvation Army, gave his last public speech. He was 83 years old. He stood and shouted to 7,000 people packing the Royal Albert Hall at the Salvation Army celebration. And he said, While women weep as they do now, I'll fight. While little children go hungry as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison in and out, in and out, I'll fight. While there yet remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight. I'll fight to the very end. And Nehemiah was exactly the same. In Nehemiah chapter 5 and verses 1 to 5, he learns about the suffering of the people. And then in verses 6 to 13... He did what he could to put the situation right. And then in the final 
part of the chapter, verses 14 to 19, for all his time, for the 12 years he was governor there in Judea, he showed immense self-denial that helped the people immensely. Yes, God is a God of power. He strengthens us to build the walls for, for us today to resist compromise, to stand strong, to live uh, upright and holy lives, to know the, the, the power of God to strengthen us against temptation. But God is also a God of love and compassion who causes us to be angry at injustice, angry at abuses and causes us to take action against evil and injustice. So let's look at this chapter briefly together. First of all, in verses 1 to 5, we learn that our rights can be wrong. The people had been zealously building the wall. That's there in chapters 3 and 4. And so the men had been living inside the walls of Jerusalem to uh, protect it. They'd been working on the walls, they'd been living in Jerusalem, sleeping in Jerusalem. And this meant, you know what this meant? It meant that their fields weren't being looked after as well as they would normally. They weren't working in the fields, bringing in the food. And so now, first of all, verses 1 and 2, the children are hungry. It is saying that the, the children are hungry, but it's difficult to translate. And these verses are probably saying more than that the children are hungry. It's probably the parents are saying that we're having to send our children out to work to get food. They've got to eat, and so the children have to go and work. This is child labor. And you know what abuses come with child labor. You know what goes on in the sweatshops of the Philippines today. It's awful when you have to send little children out to work. Secondly, verse 3, the parents are mortgaging their homes. The, the, their, their homes meant everything to them in that culture. But a bad harvest meant starvation. And so they sold their homes. A bit like the people in Moldova today who sell their kidneys to get money to put food on the table to feed their children. It's horrific. And then thirdly, verses 4 and 5, their sons and daughters were sold into slavery. The parents, look at it, verse 5, the parents were powerless. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, although our children are as good as theirs, yet we have subjected our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But we are powerless. It was like the people trafficking going on today. It's horrendous to understand the abuse that these girls experienced. And the tragedy is that it was being tolerated. Oh, yes, it's sad. But what can you do about it? hear the people in William Wilberforce's day. Oh, it's sad, but what can you do about it? You can hear the people in Dr. Bernardo's day. Oh, it's sad, but that's just 
the way the world is. Yeah, they are starving, and we have money, so they sell themselves to us, and we give them food, and that's just the way it is. No, says Nehemiah. The world might think like that. The world might behave like that. But it is totally unacceptable for those who know the power and love of God. We live by different standards. And so we see, secondly, verses 6 to 13, that wrongs must be righted. And here's the um, structure of this little section. William Wilberforce had to act. And so did Tom Bernardo, and so did Bramwell Booth, and so did Nehemiah. Uh, And this section is bracketed by Nehemiah confronting the powerful in society. You can see these verses I've put down here. It begins and ends with him confronting the nobles and officials. These were the people who were using their power to exploit the weak. They were the ones who were robbing, and so Nehemiah confronts them. And the structure is very simple. It begins, the problem causes an outcry, and it ends, the solution causes praise, verse 13. And in the middle bits, verses 7 and 8, Nehemiah confronts the nobles and officials. And then verses 12 and 13, Nehemiah makes the nobles and officials take an oath. And there in the middle, he tells them to return their money their lands, etc. But notice how Nehemiah set about this. The first thing, verse 6, Nehemiah was emotionally angry. This is verse 6. It might be up there. Do we have another slide? Yes, here we are. When he heard about these charges, he says, when I heard about these charges, I was very angry. Emotions are important. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. Jesus was moved with compassion for the crowds. His heart went out to the lepers. He was very angry with the moneylenders. We need our emotions to be stirred. When we see people trafficking in Amsterdam and realize that it's going on in Sheffield and it may be happening in Chesterfield and it's certainly happening in Bournemouth, when we read in Barnabas Fund about the starving Christians driven from their homes by violence and false religion, then then we should be angry, we should be heartbroken. And when we see the single mums trying to bring up their children on their own, and when we see the awful conditions in bed and breakfast accommodation, and I I could go on, these things should make us emotionally angry. But, secondly, Nehemiah considered it intellectually. He says, I pondered them in my mind. And here's our big mistake. We don't do this. We only live on the level of our feelings. And we have a Christianity that is purely emotional. It happens in our church services. We come to church services looking for a feel-good factor. 
And for some people, they want loud, throbbing music, so they go where there's loud, throbbing music, and other people want traditional music, so they go for a classical feel. But all that's so superficial. Honestly, whether the note is played like this or the note is played like that, whether it comes from this instrument or that instrument, is irrelevant. It's what it says that's important. It's the words that matter. And it's the same with the sermons. We want sermons all about me, how I can be successful, how I can be happy, how I can have a nice home and everything else. Well, all that's very good, but it misses the point. Christianity isn't about me. The cults are all about me. Atheism is all about me, but the Bible is all about God. And this is who God is, and this is what God does, and this is what God says, and we should get our lives in submission to God. It should be all about Him. Our need is to know Him, to imitate Him. And so we need to think these things through. And so we don't automatically give to every uh, good cause that sends a letter through our letterbox. And we don't automatically bin it either. But we ponder them. We think about them. We pray about them. Maybe God doesn't want you to give £20 to Barnabas Fund. Maybe he wants you to give your life to Barnabas Fund. And in your retirement, go and work free of charge for them. Maybe God doesn't want you to give your £20 to Barnabas Fund. Maybe he wants you to give it to the food bank in Chesterfield. Now you can only spend your £20 note once. So don't react emotionally. Let your emotions be stirred be driving you to, to ponder in your mind the right thing to do and then do the right thing. So thirdly, verses 14 to 19, Nehemiah did the right thing. We must do the right thing. There is nothing more obnoxious than the hypocrite, the person who preaches holiness but is secretly having an affair. The person who pressurizes you to be generous while he's being greedy. The person who demands that you show self-denial while they are living in the lap of luxury. We all detest hypocrisy, but you know what? If we don't practice self-denial, we will end up being hypocrites pretty quickly ourselves. You know the funny story of the big burly man who went to see the minister's wife? Mrs., he said, I wish to draw your attention to a needy family in the community. The father is dead. The mother is too ill to work. The children are starving. And they're about to be turned out of their home and will find themselves sleeping rough out in the cold unless someone pays their rent of 600 pounds. The minister's wife watched him wipe a tear away from his eye and then said, that's terrible. May I ask you who you are? The sympathetic visitor applied the handkerchief to his eyes again and sobbed, I'm their landlord. <laughs> it's awful, isn't it? But we can be like that. Well, Nehemiah wasn't like that. He not only put phenomenal pressure on the leaders to do the right thing. Look at verse 6. He accused the leaders. Look at verse 9. He rebuked 
the leaders. Look at verse 12. He made them take an oath to do what's right. He put phenomenal pressure on the leaders. The leaders have to be setting an example. They have to be leading by doing the right thing. But he made sure that he did the right thing too, verses 14 to 19. You see, in verses 14 to 19, Nehemiah shows us not to be hypocrites. And he showed us this. Negatively, he didn't take the provisions appointed for the governor. This was unusual, verse 15. Everybody before him did. He could quite easily have said, I'm sorry, this is my right. But he didn't. He didn't demand his rights. And then positively, verses 17 to 19, not only not being a burden on the people, but he actually provided out of his own wealth, out of his own pocket for the people. 150 Jews and officials ate at my table. You see what was happening? He wasn't demanding his rights, his dues, what was allotted for the governor. He was sacrificing himself to help the others. Now this is the kind of leaders we want in society, isn't it? This is the kind of leaders we want in the church. This is the kind of leaders we want in every home. Not demanding their rights, but sacrificing themselves for others. Don't be a hypocrite. And then, second thing we learn from verse 14, don't be a nine-day wonder. Nehemiah wasn't a nine-day wonder. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until the 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. For the whole of his 12 years as governor, he behaved in this sacrificial way. He wasn't like the person writing a book on generosity. And so while he's writing the book on generosity, he is generous. But as soon as it's gone to the printers, it stops. And when he starts getting royalties, oh, well, he's living a totally uh, greedy, selfish life. He wasn't like that. He wasn't just doing it while he was telling the others, oh, they've got to do it, so he did it for those two weeks. No, he persevered in his generosity. We need to put disciplines in place in our lives so we keep on doing what is right. Because you can be at a sermon like this and you can, you can feel a challenge and you can put it into practice for a few days, but by the end of the month, it's all forgotten. We've got to put disciplines in life to make sure we're not a nine-day wonder. So it, it's important that we persevere. Now for us, it needs a little bit of thought to work out how all this applies to us today. Um, and basically it applies in two ways. The, the first thing we see is that we've got to give to help the people of God. This is what Nehemiah was doing. He was using his wealth to help the people of God. He was using his energy to help the people of God. He was using his time to help the people of God. He was using his talents to help the people of God. Nehemiah pulled out all the stops to help the people of God. But also, we give to the help the needy around us who are not part of the people of God. Did you see verse 17? Let me read verse 17 to you. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. It wasn't just the people of God. 
And this fits in exactly with the New Testament emphasis. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Therefore, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of God. Not exclusively the people of God. Yeah, they are our immediate responsibility, but they're not our exclusive responsibility. So who should you be helping? Should you be involved with CAP, Christians Against Poverty, or credit unions? There are Christian charities opposing people trafficking. We think of Stop the Traffic. Uh, there are Christian charities caring for victims of people trafficking. There are Christian charities uh, helping children in the third world or supporting the persecuted church. And then we think of Johnny Erickson and her uh, charity, Through the Roof, and the other uh, charities she's inspired supporting people with disabilities. We think of the work of The Way here, and we think of Torch Trust for the Blind. In a few weeks' time, Caroline and I are attending a conference where Baroness Caroline Cox will be speaking about her charity, Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust, H-A-R-T, pronounced heart. And then we can think of the Trussell Trust and the food banks, Tear Fund, Home for Good, that's Chris Candia's charity that um, uh, helps family to adopt children. And then we have all the missionaries working, not only in evangelism, but in medicine, in education, um, legal matters, um, drug rehabilitation, and on and on I could go. And we're only scratching the surface. There's so many good organizations. Now, we obviously can't do everything, and we obviously mustn't do nothing. So what must we do? What must we do? Well, as individuals, first of all, we give you three points of, uh, to consider. First of all, think about what has a special place in your heart. What is it that moves you? Maybe rape victims? Maybe children living on the rubbish tips in Brazil? Maybe asylum seekers? What are the things that make you angry, like made Nehemiah angry? And you pray about these things every day. And just as Nehemiah pondered these things in your heart, so you get the literature, you find out about these things, and you make them items for your prayer every day and ask God to show you what you can do. First of all, find out that which stirs your heart. Secondly... Look at the charities helping these kinds of people. And you can start to financially support one or more of them. And then, thirdly, bit by bit, God will lead you from the natural to the spiritual. And you will discover ways to be more involved or help others to be involved or even start your own charity. And it comes from sticking to your commitment. It won't happen if we do it this week and have forgotten about it by next Sunday. Not a nine-day wonder. Third thing, during some conclusions, is notice that Nehemiah was an illustration of Jesus Christ. 
The only reason we follow Nehemiah's example is that Nehemiah is an example of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see Jesus hugging the lepers. We see Jesus feeding the hungry multitudes. We see Jesus healing the sick. We see the Lord Jesus encouraging the children to take up his time and to come to be with him so that he can bless them. We see Jesus helping the blind, helping the deaf, helping the handicapped. And he sacrificed himself for others. He didn't demand his rights. Philippians tells us, though being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't pull it down and say, oh, bow down and worship me. No, he made himself nothing. And we are followers of Jesus Christ, just as Nehemiah pointed to Christ. So we follow him as he illustrates Christ so that we follow Christ too. And then finally, notice that Nehemiah is a worshipper of God. He says he didn't act like the others. He says, out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Nehemiah acted out of reverence for God. It wasn't that this improved his street credibility, his kudos, didn't make him feel good if he did this, didn't improve his reputation, didn't make him feel happy, didn't make him feel... Fulfilled, it actually made him hungry and tired and poor. But Nehemiah respected God. He reverenced God. He feared God. And therefore, he acted like this. And William Wilberforce did exactly the same. First of all, he became a follower of Jesus Christ. And then he behaved as Jesus Christ would. We can't do this in our own strength. If we're going to do this, we need the strength of God to strengthen us. We need the love of God to flow through us. But by God's help, we can love God's creation, God's people, God's honor. By God's grace, we're going to love this world as God so loved the world. And we desire that God's love would fill our hearts and flow through us and impact those around us. So people will know what kind of God we worship because we are God-like. Not only gives us power to resist temptation, but love even for our enemies. And this is what it means to be God-like.